<laughs> and I'll, here, I'll give you the answer, and then I'll ask the question again. Okay, Hebrews 11, verse 6, uh, it, it simply says, and very clearly says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, and to believe that requires faith. Okay? Is faith required to be a Christian? Yes, it absolutely is. However, it's not a blind faith. It's a faith based on a lot of evidence. And I've said this before. Again, this sermon is just a reminder, but I just want you to consider this. We know this based on just uh, simple life experience, like driving a vehicle. We know that people get hurt and die in traffic accidents frequently, and we also know that nobody ever gets into their car and knows with absolute 100% certainty that they are going to get to their destination without either breaking down or getting hurt along the way. Right? Those things are true. And yet we're okay with getting into our cars. Every one of us is going to do it now when we go home after church. Most of us won't think twice about jumping into a car and then end up driving once you get it, make your way out of Pansy. Driving down a highway or even this, driving down Pansy Road where there's not even a dotted line. Going quite fast that way while cars are going quite fast this way and we're a foot or two away from getting hurt or tragedy. And yet most of us, that doesn't bother us because we've got essentially a faith in our vehicle that's built on the two primary things. One is that when you turn your steering wheel, your car will move. And the other one is that when you take your foot off the gas and touch the brake, your car will slow down. We believe that. And although we believe that, how many of you have checked your steering pump to make sure it has enough fluid and that it's working properly and you check your brake pads and your, your, the linkages and the hoses that make your brake fluid go from here to there and that it's all working properly. You don't even understand how it works. Unless you're a mechanic and I bet you even if you're a mechanic you didn't check your car this morning. We have some level of faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's a faith based on quite a bit of evidence because we know that not only is the the manufacturer who made your car, their name's at stake and they wanted to make a quality product and they're willing to have their name associated with it. That's part of the reason of it. we have uh, reason to have some faith in our vehicle. We also trust the gauges that are displaying information. We trust the, the noises that your brakes are making or not making. That's an indicator. We also know that based on experience when we get into our car, it tends to work. And we know other people the same thing. And we trust the mechanic who he has been checking the maintenance, right? We, we have actually, there is an aspect of faith that's required to get into your car and drive. But it is not a blind faith. Blind faith would be hopping into some kind of a vehicle that you didn't know how to drive, had no idea whether it was working or not, and you just closed your eyes, didn't look, didn't put your hands on the controls, didn't know how to control it, and then just hit the gas and hope for the best. That would be blind faith. And quite foolish. And kind of like that, our Christianity is not based on blind faith. It requires faith for sure. That's how God designed it. And it's always going to be that way. But it's not blind faith. It's faith based on a lot of evidence. God has given us plenty of reasons to walk with incredible confidence. 
You know, it's a little bit like Paul said in Romans 1, verse 19 to 20. He says, since what may be known about God is uh, since what may be known about God is plain to them, to people, because God has made it plain to them. It's very simple, right? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. You can actually know a lot about God just from creation before you even open the Bible. Nobody on the planet has an excuse. And so today I want to give you nine arguments that you can have ready in your mind. And I'm going to give it to you in an acronym. Some of you might be sick of this acronym already, but it's a really simple acronym. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but this acronym is going to give you an it's going to allow you to be, if you can remember it, it'll allow you to be equipped to have a compelling conversation with somebody before you say the Bible says. In fact, these nine reasons, and there's, there would be more than nine, but I'm just going to give you nine. These reasons would give you the confidence to ever get to say the words the Bible says. And so here's the acronym. The acronym is just like this. CMD, and then the word peace, and then ET. I just remember the sentence as though I was speaking it very emphatically, right? Command peace, ET, uh, whatever you figure it out. It doesn't stand for extraterrestrial, but you can imagine whatever you want there, okay? The point is, if you could remember that silly sentence... And, and remember that there's, in that sentence, it is referring to nine great reasons for confidence in Christianity. That's all you have to remember. You don't have to remember all the details as we go through it. You just have to remember this little sentence, command peace, E.T., and you'll remember them. Here's, I'm going to go through them pretty quick, but if you ever want to talk about this more, I would love it. And there's other people in our church family who are very gifted and knowledgeable exactly in these. Let's just talk about this pretty quick. The C stands for cause. It refers to what I would call the cause argument. And it essentially goes like this. Everything that exists has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. If I explain that a little bit. Everything that we see came from somewhere. Nothing came, nothing popped into existence without a cause. Nobody's ever seen something like that. And so even if we would concede that perhaps the universe started from two particles and is now expanding, we would have to remember or ask the question, where did those two particles come from? Because nothing comes from nothing. Everything that we see came from somewhere and so nothing comes from nothing. The universe could not have created itself. And so whatever caused the universe must be from beyond the universe, can't be made up of material or matter from inside the universe, cannot be limited by the same space or time that things are inside the universe, and must be uncaused and must be unimaginably powerful. Much like God. 
right? That's the cause argument. That's what the C stands for. And then the M stands for the moral law argument. This is essentially human conscience, right? Our conscience will commend us if an action is good, and it will make us feel guilty if an action is bad. The, our conscience can be dulled, seared as with a hot iron or misguided, but it reminds us of our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness. It's actually God's nature that provides a reference or standard for what's good or bad. His nature, his nature is the moral compass for everyone on earth because as a, at a base level, everyone has a similar moral law belief. For an example, it doesn't matter who you steal from, they will think it isn't right that you took what is theirs. You can try that here in the church. <laughs> you can try it outside anywhere. You can try it in a different country. You can, talk, you can do that to anybody, and they'll recognize there's something there that's not right. In fact, anytime someone says or thinks, hey, that's not fair, they're confirming that we have a similar moral law built into us, which gives evidence for a God that revealed himself to us through human conscience. This argument, this moral law argument, it takes Satan's insinuating question of, is God good? And replaces it with a truthful and exposing question of, can you even be good without God? That's the moral law point or argument. The D, and here's the thing, as we go through some of these, you might be thinking, oh, wow, that one's, ah, man, I'm not sure if I could articulate that one quite as well as the other one, or maybe that one feels, one feels stronger than the other. One of my good friends has said that, described it like this, that each one of those is like uh, pieces of a chain link fence. And that even, even though one maybe not quite as, uh, maybe that one's not my favorite compared to this one, when you put those together, they make a very, very compelling bit of evidence. So anyways, the D stands for design. This point is so compelling that we could talk about this literally for many days. Here's a short version. When you consider how fragile life on this planet is and recognize how many scientific constants need to be finely tuned to like an astonishingly precise value, in order to sustain life at all, it becomes obvious that creation has been put together with intentional design and the design must have had a designer. Anyone who's ever seen the stars that we just sang about, the stars that have been, are in the sky, anybody who's ever watched documentaries like Planet Earth or many of the documentaries that are available to us today, they all give evidence of a sovereign creator. David recognized this 3,000 years ago, long before TV and planet Earth ever came out. <laughs> he was just looking, and he recognized this. He said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And as scientific information increases, 
we only get to see more evidence of all of the design that points to an obvious and extraordinary designer. Okay, let me just explain this a little bit. If you are on a boat or a cruise ship or something and you're out in the ocean and you, you happen to come across a small island and on the island you notice some stones that look suspiciously like they're a hut <laughs> and they're really seems like there's quite a few stones in a, what looks like a fence. And there seems to be some well-worn paths nearby. You might say, what's going on here? This looks suspicious as though somebody lives here. Okay? A skeptical person might at that point be able to say, well, it could be just like what has happened here. Perhaps it was a windstorm that made the rocks move like that with some erosion and a tornado and over time, that's what it looked like. However, if on the beach, on the, in the sand, you see some words scrawled in there and three words, it says, I need help. Okay, you got about 10 letters there and those 10 letters are information. That information automatically changes the question from not only what has happened here, it becomes a question of who wrote that? Because with information, the question changes from what to a who. Because now we know someone is there. Right? You guys with me? That's based on like 10 letters of information. Okay? Consider then the amount of information that is in the DNA of your body, every one of your cells. According to a Harvard article, each strand of DNA has base pairs that make up a code, if you will, that is about three billion characters long. So want to kind of, sometimes when people say numbers, uh, whatever, it's hard to grab them. So if you took your Bible, and if you were to count every one of the letters of the words in there, and add all the punctuation and all the spaces, and you were just to count all of those, let's call them characters, and you were to put them all in one long word, you would have a word about five million characters long. So in order to get to the same number of base uh, pairs in your DNA, you would need 600 Bibles stacked side by side by side to get to the same number of base pairs that your DNA has. And that DNA code is unique to each person on the planet. And that DNA code is written in every one of the trillions of cells that you have in your body. That is a lot of information. Forces you to ask the question, who made that? And it points to a very extraordinary designer. Amen? And there are so many arguments, or so many points that you can make out of the design argument that go like that, and that just goes on and on and on. The P in command peace, E-T, the P stands for prophecies. And here we're just thinking about the number of prophecies that were recorded about Jesus long before his birth and how in his birth and life and resurrection he fulfilled them. Just for instance, you guys know what we're talking about, but Luke 24 talks exactly about this and this is what we're thinking about. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... 
Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And he said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so Jesus was referring to the Old Testament saying, look, it's all pointing to me. And some scholars have actually said that there are about 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus. Those prophecies are specific enough that the, the, the mathematical probability of them all being fulfilled in one person is staggeringly improbable. Basically impossible, okay? Let's slow this down a little bit. Peter Stoner, he is a chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. He is very passionate about biblical prophecies, and he, together with 600 of his students, started a project. They looked at eight of the prophecies about Jesus. And they came up with extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled. Of how many? Eight. There's more than eight, I'm telling you that. <laughs> but they looked at eight. And they considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. The conclusion to their research was quite staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy those eight prophecies was one in 10 to the power of 17. That means 10 with 17 zeros behind it. For those of us who are mathematically challenged, let, let me just explain that a little bit like this, because this is how he explained it, and I appreciated that, because I am one of those mathematically challenged people. Okay? If you have 10 tickets, 10 pieces of paper, you put them all in a hat, shake it, and tell somebody, a blindfolded person, come pick one, their there, there chances of picking the ticket you want them to pick would be 1 in 10. But now do the same thing using that number 10 to the power of 17. That number is so big that if each one of those, each one of 10 to the power of 17 was a loony, and you had that many loonies, they would cover the state of Texas about two feet deep. And if you were now to mark one of those loonies and then blindfold somebody and tell them that they could walk into there wherever they wanted, reach down, rifle through, and pick one, the odds of them picking the one are the same odds that people could have spoken those eight prophecies and have them all fulfilled in one man at the right time. That would be the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing those eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man, providing that they wrote, their, wrote using their own wisdom. Now, you and I are thinking, well, yeah, but they didn't use their own wisdom. They were speaking as men carried along by the Holy Spirit, and that is exactly the point. The, we'll go back to command peace. The E in peace stands for evidence. And we're thinking about archaeological evidence. And many Christians at some point in their Christian walk have asked a question similar to this. What if someone just made up the Bible? What if it's a cleverly invented story? 
And if you haven't asked that question, I can pretty much guarantee you that someone that you love either has asked it or will. And while faith is required to believe the Bible, it is certainly not blind faith. From this argument alone, we can point to a lot of evidence that is found from being dug out of the ground or found in caves that affirms the consistency and accuracy of Scripture and the details recorded in it. New pieces like this are literally being found every day. Here's a tiny sampling. The Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, in 1947 include at least some portion of every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Not only do they confirm the a Bible translation is accurate word for word, they include the entire chapter of Isaiah 53, for instance, which talks all about Jesus and has in itself many prophecies. These scrolls confirm the prophecies were written about Jesus well before he was born, and they also confirm that the copy of the Bible that you and I have in our hands today is accurate. Or if you consider the Ebla tablets, they're stone documents written about 1500 BC, and on them are many names that are found in Scripture, the names of patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, biblical details that would refer to things such as Solomon's great wealth, and many names that are found in Scripture, like Canaan or King Belshazzar, and so on, are found written on these stones. And every time they, you find that in archaeology, it confirms, that's right, that's what the Bible says. Or consider the inscription found in Hezekiah's tunnel underneath Jerusalem that confirms the Bible story about Hezekiah. Consider the story of evil, the, I don't know if you remember, the evil Assyrian king, Sennacherib, if you remember that story, read that Bible story. It's a well-documented, incredible story about evil King Sennacherib and how he was attacking all of the cities in Judah. And he captured them all except one. And that's where Hezekiah was praying. That story is well-documented in Scripture. And fascin fascinatingly, it is also well-documented on stones that were found in, on the walls of Sennacherib's palace. It's also well documented on what's called Sennacherib's prism, which is a large stone that has inscribed on it exactly that story. And it's not written there from the Bible. It just lines up exactly with what the Bible says. Fascinating. There's many archaeological finds that we could talk about this. Um, but even obscure little details, if you've ever wondered why does the Bible include some, like, in the Old Testament, there's some fascinating little details, and you've got to wonder, like, why is that in there? Just one example of that would be King Jehoiachin, and he is someone who was taken captive, and when he was captive in the enemy land, the Bible says that he ate at that king's table and received a regular allowance. That's an obscure detail. But about a hundred years ago, stone tablets were found that are known as Jehoiachin's rations tablets. 
They were dug out of the ground and they describe exactly what those rations are. They were found at the Ishtar Gate of Babylon in what is present-day Iraq. And we could, could give you links of we're reading about who, who found them, discovered them, and all those things, and exactly what they say. But at some point, you have to become thankful for God that He would confirm His infallible Word over and over and over, even through physical, archaeological evidence. He wouldn't have to do that. The A in command peace stands for all, all about Jesus. This is further concrete evidence that it is humanly impossible to invent the Bible because the Bible's authors, the Bible, uh, Bible's authors include people from a variety of different walks of life, from rich to poor, doctors to scholars, farmers and fishermen. And not only were the authors writing from different centuries, they were also writing from different continents. And despite the variety of walks of life and period of time, you can cross-reference scripture that spans being written from different centuries with an astounding consistency, even between authors that didn't even know each other. And it's all about Jesus. It's all about the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who fulfills covenants and prophecies in addition to the first-hand accounts that are written about him in the New Testament. And so as consequently, every religion on the planet has to answer the question of who Jesus was. Because it's common knowledge that Jesus was actually here. And when you contrast the Bible with writings of other religions, such as the Quran or the Book of Mormon, or writings of any other religion in the world, in regards to the miraculous nature of their existence, they all fall incredibly, miserably short. It's not even close. Not only do they lack the archaeological evidence that the Bible has, but they're either written by one leader himself or perhaps his immediate followers within a short period of time. The Bible, on the other hand, was written over a period of 1,500 years, approximately 1400 BC till about 100 AD, by 40 to 44 different authors, and the entire book is about one man, Jesus. If that argument alone kind of sails over your head, why don't you spend some time this afternoon trying to write some prophetic words about a man who's going to come in 1,500 years from now and then hope that someone else 100 years from now is going to write the same thing and 100 years later the same thing and you guys will never know each other. At some point that becomes a compelling case. Copies. The C in, in peace stands for Copies. We've talked about this. I've talked about this standing on the back of my truck in summer. This is what was referred to as textual criticism. The study of existing manuscripts of ancient texts to confirm and verify its correct wording. This applies to all ancient writings, including the Bible. And with any ancient text, it's very difficult to know which copy is the original and so the only way to know if it's accurate is to compare it with other copies and then if you wanted to do that well you would want to compare it with as many copies as possible and you would want to have the earliest copies possible the ones that are closest to the original 
And our New Testament, for instance, has been copied with an astounding degree of accuracy. No other work in literature comes even close to the number of copies that can be compared and in the closeness of those copies to the original date. Josh McDowell has many good resources exactly on this point. But here's where, and there's other guys who have done the same. But it is because we have so many, so many manuscripts of the Bible that scholars know which are the significant variations in the translations. And consequently, we can be assured that not one of them changes any core Christian doctrine. And so, for instance, I'll use Mark 9.29 as an example. In some Bibles, it talks about the disciples' prayer, and in other translations, it says, talks about their prayer, and it throws in the words, and fasting. And so there's a difference in some translations. And there's, a, there's a, the occasional few in the New Testament, and they'll always be highlighted with a footnote in your Bible. But when you understand the process of textual criticism, those footnotes don't make us question the reliability of the Bible. They actually remind us, remind us of its astounding accuracy. Because we can know which, where the discrepancies are, and we know that none of them cast any shadow of doubt on the core values of Christianity. There is no other his- historical document that even comes close to the Bible in that degree. And then the last, I'm going to skip past the last E in peace, and I'm going I'm to go to that last, we're going to jump over to E.T. And I said it didn't stand for extraterrestrial. It stands for eyewitness testimony. And if you think about eyewitness testimony, you think about two eyes, and that's easy to remember. There's two primary points to understanding the eyewitness testimony. In addition to our faith, and in addition to all the evidences for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture, it's also important for Christians to have logical reasons of why we believe that Jesus' resurrection actually happened. Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our teaching and our preaching and our faith is completely useless. That's exactly what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You and I have faith that Jesus was raised from the dead, and the authors of the Bible claim Jesus rose from the dead, but a skeptical person doesn't share our faith and doesn't believe the Bible. And so it's good to have some logical arguments in your head to defend the resurrection in the way that Scripture describes it. And in short, we can have tremendous confidence in Jesus' resurrection based on eyewitness testimony. And there's two eyes, and so we'll just make two primary points. And as there, there's actually a list of reasons we could have confidence in Jesus' resurrection. But if you just remember these two primary points, it'll keep you on the right track. First of all, nobody dies for what they know is a lie. Nobody dies for what they know is a lie. People may die for a cause believing a lie, but nobody dies for a cause knowing it's a lie. The disciples had seen, heard, and touched Jesus after his resurrection, 
And as a result, they were all willing to die as martyrs. And many of them did. In fact, not only were they willing to die as martyrs, but the church actually came under tremendous persecution and flourished. James, Jesus' brother, is an example of that. He didn't believe Jesus during Jesus' ministry years. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, he encountered Jesus, and that transformed his life so much (laughs) that he became a pillar in the church and likely died as a martyr as a result. That's eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection. The second point to that is called the criterion of embarrassment, which essentially means that one of the ways that you can judge about whether or not a person is telling the truth is if they don't leave out embarrassing details in their story or embarrassing details about themselves in their story. In other words, if you were making up a false religion and you knew it was a lie, would you make yourself out to be a dim-witted coward who had difficulty understanding the teacher and ran away naked at awkward moments and betrayed the hero of the story at the most critical moment in the story? Would you tell about the times that you got scolded by the teacher or argued with your friends over foolish things? (laughs) Would you... Tell about the times that people doubted the teacher or betrayed him. Or during an era when a woman's testimony was not even valid in court, would you use women and their testimony as first witness of his most amazing miracle, his resurrection? Would you include the difficult teachings of Jesus, how he called people his enemies, pagans, hypocrites, thieves, dogs, pigs, false prophets? He referred to the generation as wicked and adulterous, blind guides, defiled, fools, snakes, brood of vipers, cursed. And that's just from Matthew's Gospel. And if you were making this all up, would you include and would you bother to mention that Jesus' family thought he was crazy and others described him as being raving mad and some even thought he was a drunk? The only reason the disciples would have for mentioning those embarrassing details as if they were actually true. Now let me go to the last E in peace. The last E in peace stands for experience. And we're talking about personal experience. And so for instance, if I was talking about this, I might say something along this line. The Bible makes really bold claims about God such as this, okay, God speaking to people, God telling people things prior to them happening, or that the Lord would confirm His Word through supernatural signs. And if I was telling somebody about that, I would say, you know what, those are very bold claims, but let me tell you a story. And I might be inclined to tell them a story about Cindy Sawatsky, who is sitting in the church right now. And I might tell them about how July 1, 2018, she was laying on the floor right here. Many of you remember that story. It is a very well-documented story with many witnesses that testifies of personal experience of God speaking to imperfect people, 
telling them about what's going to, warning them about what will happen before it happens, and confirming it with supernatural signs. <laughs> that kind of personal experience of him is no small defense of our Christian faith. And you can do the same thing. You can substitute your personal experience into your conversation. You can use someone else's experience, but it is the most powerful to put yours in there. And so the Bible, for instance, makes claims about how people's characters change when they follow Jesus. You might be able to testify, listen, the Bible says characters change. Here's how mine has changed, just like the Bible says when people follow Jesus. You might, the Bible makes claims about people finding freedom from following Jesus. And you might be able to say, well, you know what, here's a story about how I've actually experienced exactly what the Bible describes. Maybe it's freedom from an addiction, freedom from whatever has been held you in bondage. The Bible also talks about answers to prayer, supernatural. Maybe you tell a little story that says, listen, this is what the Bible claims, and I've actually experienced this. Let me tell you the story. That's irrefutable evidence of this Christian faith. Or maybe it's a supernatural peace, or love, or hope, or joy, and that list goes on. The Bible makes many bold claims about what's going to happen in a Christian's life if they follow Jesus. And you can just fill that in and say, listen, I've experienced exactly that. That's a really compelling reason on its own to believe the Bible's true. Does it take faith to believe that the Bible's true? Yes. <laughs> sure does. But it isn't blind faith. It is faith based on a lot of evidence. Amen? Christians can actually walk with a lot of confidence. My prayer is that you and I would get really good at not selling God short and that we would be very, very thankful and appreciate the evidences that he's given us. And we would grab those and use them. I know Isaiah talked about, the Lord talked to Isaiah and he said he's, he described himself as having his arms open like this and standing like that all day long waiting for people that's exactly right. He has given us so much evidence. He's just standing there with his arms open. Let's not sell him short. Join with me in prayer. Jesus, <laughs> I just, you would have, you don't have to give us evidences, Lord. I suppose if you wanted to, you could just require us to have blind faith. And we could do that. And yet, Lord, the faith that you ask of us, you you'd so generously give us so much evidence over and over and over. At some point, we have to become thankful for those things. Lord, help us to be good at articulating reasons of why we have such faith. And then to dive into our Bibles, Lord, and live accordingly. Jesus, allow that confidence to be, be so deep and sure and solid in our lives 
that we are then equipped to obey, equipped to stand and stand firm on your infallible word. We love you, Jesus. Amen.